Welcome to SLP Happy Hour. We are a podcast for SLPs with big hearts who are looking for ways to improve the lives of ourselves and the humans we work with. This episode will share a step-by-step plan so that you can see clients on the side as a side hustle. We've got you covered if you want a step-by-step plan to get started. By the end of this episode, you'll have your private practice startup plan so you can pick up a few clients and a little extra income on the side. I'm Sari Wu. And I'm Sarah Lockhart. Want to keep your full-time job but start a side hustle seeing private clients on the side? Are you a stay-at-home parent interested in picking up some extra private practice hours in your free time? Are you working part-time, but do you want more hours? Seeing some extra private clients may be just what you need. So Jill Shook has got you covered with a step-by-step plan for SLPs who don't want the cost of having a physical space, don't want to deal with insurance billing, and don't want a full-time practice, but do want to pick up a few clients. There's so much to learn, and this is a subject that I've been really interested in, and it's a listener-requested topic, so we know you are interested in this topic too. So grab your notepad and pen, or open a notes file on your computer, because you are about to learn a ton of actionable advice to get started. Let's do this. Hi, Jill. It is so great to have you back on the podcast. Hey guys, it's so great to be here. So Jill, just like we did last time, we are going to warm up with a lightning round of questions, and I've added a few wackier ones than usual. Are you up for it? I'm ready. Okay. Have you ever been told you look like someone famous, and who was it? Um, A while back, someone found a picture of um, Charlize Theron with glasses, like big glasses like I have. And it could have been my doppelganger, like it looked just like me. So that's the only person. But only when she had huge glasses on. In general, I do not look like her. (laughs) (laughs) She's a good one. I would love to be told I look like her. I know, right? (laughs) Quite a compliment. That's a great one. What is your least favorite food? Least favorite food? Hmm. I think probably fish in general. I like smoked salmon, but otherwise not not a fan of fish. Okay. And what is your very favorite type of food? Uh, Ice cream and or chocolate. It would be hard to not have either of those. Very good choices. And I like this next question. If you could add anyone to Mount Rushmore, who would it be and why? Um, I think it would have to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, even though she's not yet deceased, thankfully, um, because I think that she deserves to be up there. (laughs) Jill, what is your favorite thing about being an SLP? Uh, there are a lot of things that I love about it. I think my favorite is when you're really connecting with a client and you're seeing them like make progress in real time. Um, and you're, you just like feel on top of your game. That's probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. And what do you find the most challenging part of this job at this time? Definitely the paperwork and all that comes with that. Um, like today I spent about an hour on the phone with Medicaid and did not solve any of the questions I had. So trying to get the paperwork done, I think. I relate to that so much. My evenings are the same. Yeah. yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you became an SLP, what your work setting and caseload is like, kind of how you got to where you are today? Okay. Um, So I started out 
uh, in a private practice that also that worked in a school. So I would see clients or students at school, and then I would see clients a couple evenings a week. So that was a couple 12-hour days, um, and that was a lot. And then I transitioned just into schools. And after um, three years of that, I was doing er- just early intervention. So in, in Pittsburgh, early intervention is both birth to three and also three to five. Um, so that's confusing. But it was early intervention with three to five. Uh, and when I moved to Pittsburgh, I found out that the pay scale here is uh, a lot lower than I was used to. So I decided to take on some side jobs to kind of make up the extra income um, because student loans still needed to be paid. So I took on um, an early intervention uh, job that was contract. So I was actually seeing kids birth to three in their homes. And then I decided that I wanted to be kind of more in control of what I was doing. So I uh, decided to start seeing private clients. And I kind of jumped into that and learned a whole bunch along the way. And um, since I had my daughter back in um, 2016, I have been uh, exclusively seeing private clients part time. Mm-hmm. And professionally or personally, what's a goal you're working on right now? Um, professionally, I am working on having a lot more accessible information for people in private practice because I don't think there's a whole lot out there when you're just getting started. Um, I mean, you, there's a couple of Facebook groups and you can Google, but there's not a lot that's just for people in private practice who are SLPs. So I'm working on uh, adding a lot more to my website. Mm-hmm. And what's a habit that you're trying to create right now and how is that going? Um, one of my habits is, uh, just trying to drink more water because I sit in front of my computer and I tend to not drink any water. Um, so I know that's a boring habit, but that's what I'm trying to do right now so that I can be more healthy. I think Sari's with you on that one. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, if you had a few words to describe your speech therapy style, what would they be? I would say relatable. Um, cause I'm an empath, so I feel what my clients are feeling pretty strongly. So I'm really able to connect with them that way. Um, that can be bad when they're not, um, feeling good, um, but relatable. And then probably I would say fun because I work very hard to make sure my clients have, uh, activities that they like. Like if they like baseball, we do a lot of stuff about baseball. If they like, you know, dolls, we do stuff with that. So I try to be very um, intentional uh, about being fun with that, with things that my clients find fun. Like not everyone likes stickers, so we don't do stickers for all of them. Mm -hmm. Keeping it individualized and figuring out what each client thinks is fun and keeping it engaging. Yeah, exactly. So we wanted to start with some of the biggest questions that we get about seeing clients on the side or part of as part of a side hustle. So what have we got, Sari? So our first question, Jill, is to ask you to tell us about your experience in private practice and teaching other SLPs how to start their own. So I kind of touched on my experience a little bit earlier with how I just decided to start seeing private clients and just kind of jumped into it and Googled everything along the way. Um, But over the years, I've learned kind of how to structure what I do and a lot of um, you know, paperwork, uh, processes and like systems to get things done faster and better. Um, and I've really enjoyed being able to teach other SLPs, uh, via the teachable platform. So an online, uh, course, um, and then I have the course with Northern speech, um, so that people can really connect and see the video, 
um, because I think that's really important. Right. Because there's no, there's no step-by-step if you Google it, which is what I had to do. Um, (laughs) So it's really nice to see like, what do you do first? What do you do next? Um, And it's also a really overwhelming time of life to try to figure out how to start a private practice. I remember there were just a million things to do. And I didn't know what order they needed to be done in. So I, I, I just tried to do my best to do one step at a time. So mm-hmm. we're talking about um, seeing clients on the side today. So what does that really mean to see clients that quote unquote on the side? When you see, you know, private clients, people that aren't related to the other job you have, um, you know, usually after school or on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And Jill, who might be a good fit for seeing clients as a side hustle or privately? Really any SLP that doesn't have a non-compete clause uh, in their contract, um, or if they have a non-compete clause, they understand how it applies to them and how they can see clients without breaking that. Um, And then really just anyone who has the um, energy and the determination to do this, because there are some hurdles to it, but you want to make sure that you are able to break through them because once you have everything set up, it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And I have, most of my jobs have not had non-compete clauses, but I have once. Um, and that was new to me. So what is a non-compete clause? So um, it's kind of, it can vary based on where you work, but a non-compete clause is really just a way for your current employer to keep um, their employees from kind of poaching clients. Uh, because understandably, if you're working for someone and you know they've done the the work, the marketing of getting the clients and everything, and then you try to go off on your own and you take those clients and kind of poach off of their work, that's just not okay. Uh, so in general, that that non compete clause will keep that from happening. And um, oftentimes, school, schools will even have them too, so that you don't um, take students. And, you know, take them from the therapy in school and kind of do private therapy with them so that you can get more money that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's legal to do that. And we can talk about that in a little bit um, to see clients that you do see in a school setting. But there are certain um, structures that you have to follow for that. Mm-hmm. And if someone's listening and thinking, hmm, could this be right for me? Like I am interested in getting some um, private clients. What? What are some good things, some awesome things about seeing clients just that way in addition to your breadwinning job? I really liked being able to kind of have autonomy with who and where I saw clients um, instead of just, you know, getting a referral and having to see a client at this time in this classroom on this day um, and, you know, having goals that you've had given to you and having to change the IEP and do X, Y, and Z. Um, Just being able to you know, have a client that approaches you and you're able to provide them the therapy that they really want. Um, It's that's really awesome to be able to connect with clients that way. And if someone is listening and feeling a bit overwhelmed, what's one thing that they can do to start right now? Um, So make a list of the things that we're going to be talking about later and see if they already have some of them, some of the things that they can check off. uh, Because Listing the things that you do really helps um, instead of just kind of willy nilly being like, oh, I need to do this. And oh, then I need to get my business license. And then I need to get my tax ID. And what about HIPAA and this and that? Just listing things that you need to do and then being able to uh, tackle those is a huge first step in wrapping your mind around it. And there's no way you can uh, hold that 
all in your mind. Like I remember when starting right. my private practice, that was a pretty long list and it took a lot of time. So um, yeah, writing it down is great advice. And along those lines, what do you think, Jill, is the biggest mistake SLPs make when they decide they want to start seeing clients on the side? Um, well, I know what the biggest mistake is because I made it. Um, I didn't I didn't list the things out that I needed and I wasn't sure about everything going into it. Um, so there were a lot of like, oh, no, what did I just do? Or, oh, no, have I been violating HIPAA or you know, these huge questions that wake you up at three in the morning in a cold sweat. Mm -hmm. Um, because I didn't take the time to say, Hey, you know, what is, what's the structure of this? How do I need to set up everything in order to see these private clients? Mm -hmm. So let's do our mini training step-by-step. We have 10 steps for seeing your own clients on the side. So what's our first one, Jill? So the very first one doesn't seem that important if you're just, you know, looking at it, but it's really important because all of the other steps kind of build on it. So that first step for seeing your private clients on the side is that you'd have to decide on a business name. And if you're just seeing a few private clients um, or you want to incorporate later, you're going to need that name on everything. Um, and if you want to incorporate and have something like LLC after your name, you're going to have to have decided on that before because you don't want to have to change all of your business stuff, you know, down the road. It's doable, but it's a huge headache. So if you're just going to be a sole practitioner, just seeing a couple private clients, you can go ahead and just use your name. You know, like I could just be, you know, Jill Shook and I wouldn't have to come up with a different, you know, LLC or anything. But if you want to, you know, set up a tax structure like an LLC, um, Decide on that name first, because that name is going to go on all of your paperwork. Mm -hmm. And um, a question I get often is, you know, when when deciding a name, what what should you keep in mind? And I would say, make sure it's not already trademarked by someone else. Like it's not all, right. already the name of a really established private practice or a course or a business. And then think about, it's really hard to know this early on, um, but also think about not naming it necessarily after your town if you might get rental space like in a nearby town, for example. Um, and then as far as using your name, I would say if you're certain that, you know, you don't want to hire using your name is great. Or if you're just unsure, just go ahead and use your name. Um, if you think that you probably are going to want to hire and you know that from the outset, you might want to find something more general. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. So now that you have your name, uh, you can go ahead and get your tax ID number. Um, some people say, oh, you don't need one. Uh, I would say you do because identity theft is a thing. And even if you're not going to be um, charging insurance and billing insurance, you're going to be creating super bills for clients so that they can be reimbursed if their insurance allows out-of-network um, participation. And you're going to need your tax ID on that. So you want to put um, go to the IRS website and get a tax ID. It takes like five seconds. Um, it will include your business name on there. And then instead of putting your social security number on all of your paperwork, you'll have this nice kind of anonymous tax ID number um, that'll be associated with your business name. So you won't be sending your um, social security number hither and yon throughout the internet. Right. And what's funny is um, as I, you know, help people um, or like counsel people or they're asking me, um, I see a lot of pushback when I encourage people to get an NPI number. And I'm not sure why, because it's really not difficult. It doesn't cost <laughs> any money. You go to the IRS website and you use that tax ID all 
the time. It's going to be on bills your clients see. Every single time you call an insurance company, it's the first thing they want. Um, And when you, you know, if you are billing insurance, you know, now or later, it's going to be on all of that documentation. So if you don't get a tax ID number, like Jill said, and you explained it just perfectly, your social security number is going to be everywhere because you're giving it to so many people and who knows who they give it to. So I would say... I just want to encourage people to just like, you know, take the short amount of time to do something free, protect your social security number and get a tax ID number. This is such good practical advice to know because how would I know otherwise that I would Mm -hmm. be so vulnerable without the tax ID number? Mm -hmm. So what is step number three, Jill? So step three is another number that you're going to need. And, um, You definitely want to write all of these down because you'll eventually memorize them because they'll be on everything. Um, But you want to write them down at first. So step three is to get your MPI number, which stands for National Provider Identification Number. And that's actually um, part of HIPAA. It was enacted in 2004 because before then, uh, providers didn't have to have identification numbers. Um, And now... MPI numbers kind of um, obviously identify a provider so that, you know, people can't be double dipping and billing over here in this name and over here in that name. Um, And it's also going to be on uh, any sort of insurance information you give clients. So if you'll be putting that on super bills um, and obviously if you do want to bill insurance, you're going to have to have that as well because that'll be how they identify you. Mm -hmm. And doctors have NPI numbers, chiropractors, anyone who's providing service to clients will have that number. Sometimes you need to sign it next to your name. Um, How do you get an NPI number? So it's really simple, um, but you're going to need your other, the business name and your tax ID number that we talked about previously. You just go to the MPPES website and I don't remember what all of those letters stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, you can just Google get MPI number and it's the website that pops up for that. Um, and you put you input all of your um, your SLP information, even if you've just worked in the schools. Um, if the school that you've worked in has billed Medicaid, um, they will have an MPI number for you. Um, I had an MPI number that I didn't know about because schools that I've worked in have billed Medicaid. So I went and put my name in. Oh, I have an MPI number. So I had that MPI as my personal number. Um, and then I just applied to get one for my, my business because I had a different name. Um, like you, Sarah, I have Jill Shook Therapy LLC. Mm-hmm. Um, so since it's not just my name, I'm not a sole practitioner. I have an LLC. Mm-hmm. I got a group MPI number, which is called a type two MPI number for Jill Shook Therapy, which is the facility. Mm-hmm. And then the tax ID number is free. The NPI number is also free. But next up, you've got to plunk down some change uh, for step four. What's step four? So step four is you're going to need liability insurance. And really, people are going to tell you you don't need this. You do need it. Um, Just don't even think about not having it because you never know what's going to happen. Um, And liability insurance, the price varies a lot. Expect to spend, you know, a couple hundred bucks on it. Um, depending on what you need it for. If you're not seeing clients in a an office space, you're not going to need general liability. You're just going to need professional liability insurance. And you can get it through um, Mercer, which is also called pro-liability. 
through the ASHA website. Um, so you definitely want to get that because anything can happen and it's, it's not worth not having this. When you consider the risk of not having it, <laughs> that's not a lot of money. Yeah. And then to go with the liability insurance, we're spending some money. Uh, what are you going to do with all of that money? You're going to put that in your business bank account. Um, and this is something that I get a lot of pushback on from people who say, no, I don't need a business bank account. I'm just a sole proprietor. Um, but I say that it's better safe than sorry. And it makes taxes a breeze to just have a business bank account. And it's a lot easier, you know, if anything ever did happen and you were audited, you just have that bank account um, that's just with your business. Thank you for that fifth tip there to have a bank account. What is tip number six? So the sixth thing that you'll need to do um, is think about if you're going to be providing evaluations. If you're just seeing, you know, private clients who are paying out of pocket, um, you don't have to have those really expensive evaluations up front. Um, so you can choose if you want to have them or not. And that's the sixth thing that you need to think about because it's really expensive. So if you're going to be thinking about that, you need to be saving yeah, I for think them. I, I do bill insurance and I do have standardized assessments. I'm I'm trying to remember, um, I think I spent about $1,000 just on tests and protocols because yep. you're going to need articulation. You're going to need language. You're going to need a preschool language. You're going to need a school age language. You're going to need like something that's criterion referenced <laughs> for kiddos who can't do the standardized test. So that's great advice. And um, oh, the next, I'm, I'm looking at step seven and it's something I had a hard time with. <laughs> uh, what's our step seven? <laughs> So the seventh step um, is also a not-to-be-missed step, and it is something that I also get a lot of pushback on from people who, even if they've even started their um, private practices, they don't realize that they need this. Um, but your seventh step is you want to set up a HIPAA-compliant way to store and share documents. So that'd be email, um, physical storage of you know paper tests and that sort of thing. Uh, so you want to make sure that you have HIPAA-compliant email. Um, it's not required that you have, you know, doubly encrypted email, something like Hushmail or Vertrue, um, or, uh, there's a couple of other ones, Powbox. Um, you, that's not required. Um, I mean, HIPAA is not nice, but they're not going to make you go and pay all this money for these, you know, double HIPAA compliant, secure encrypted things. And for two, you know, they understand if you're just seeing a few clients on the side, you're not a huge private practice, it's going to be, you know, financially implausible for you to be able to do that. But you do want to make sure that you do have some sort of um, encryption set up on your email. And you can do that if you have a Gmail, you can do G Suite through Gmail, which will allow you to set that up. Um, or you can do um, Office 365 also has that option. And when you're looking at the emails, you definitely want to look at something that's um, that says they will sign a BAA with you. And so if you think of HIPAA, always think of BAA, because that means business associate agreement. And that's what you have to sign with anyone that's going to be seeing any um, protected health information. So you want to make sure that the way that you, you know, store documents and have email is um, compliant that way by signing a BAA. Exactly. And um, I think a super common question is, is Gmail HIPAA compliant? So then it's like, well, do you have G Suite? Have you signed your BAA? Um, if not, no. Yep. Yeah. Basically, people are like, well, is X or Y HIPAA compliant? If you haven't signed a BAA with them, then no, it's not. 
So you definitely want to make sure that you do that. Uh, and a side note to that is I, I've seen people even um, using like PayPal um, or uh, what is that other Zelle to send uh, invoices to people. And that just like makes my all the alarm bells go off in my head because, um, you know, unless you have an invoice that somehow has no identifying information on it, uh-huh. like it's just blank and it has, you know, it just says yeah. like no, it has no line item or anything and doesn't have their name on it. Um, then that's protected health information. If it has a name, that it has speech therapy, you know, anything on there that's personal, uh-huh. that's considered protected health information. Um, so you cannot use PayPal and you cannot use, um, you know, Zelle to, to pay invoices and to send invoices to clients. And also initials are HIPAA compliant. So yes. I've had quite a few people say, oh, I'll just put the initials. Nope, <laughs> can't do that either. You might be able to use it in a school system, Mm-hmm. Um, because they have to abide by FERPA and uh, not HIPAA. But just because it flies in a school system doesn't mean it flies in private practice because we're considered a health entity. Okay. And then I remember creating lots of like attendance policies and HIPAA forms, and I had a giant stack of papers. So tell me a little bit about once you have that first client, hooray, what do they need to sign? So if you're used to working in the schools, you're used to having a whole stack of papers to give to people. So this wouldn't be too too much. Um, but you'll definitely have to have that HIPAA policy that says, you know, this is how we treat your information. Um, and next to that, you also have to have the receipt of privacy practices, receipt of HIPAA policy. So you give it to them and then they have to sign the form that say you, says you gave it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have a release of information um, because even if you're just seeing, you know, little Johnny it, you know, once a week to work on R after school, you're going to want to talk to his school therapist if he has a school therapist or pediatrician or someone. Um, So you have to have that release of information. You can't just call them or email them or whatever. Um, And then you also have to have your um, permission to provide an evaluation and therapy. So just like you would have in a school, um, you have to have a form, have a documentation that says that, you know, the parent or guardian says it's okay to, you know, evaluate or and treat this client. Um, And then if you have specific um, procedures for payment, say, um, or attendance policies, um, you want to write those down, too, and have the the client sign them. Because the number one rule of private practice, especially of HIPAA, is if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. Um, So you have to make sure that everything's kind of written down and you can point to it and say, oh, you know, you've been absent, you know, four times, but as you signed at the beginning of therapy, after three times, I can put you on a wait list. Um, and so you have to be able to have that, um, that list, have it documented. Absolutely. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this, but one of my previous jobs before an SLP was I helped manage data and policies for the school district I work for. And I can just restate how important those policies were to have in place for whatever setting you work in. And Jill, uh, mm-hmm. I hate to do this because I really appreciate all of the practical advice that you have shared, uh, but let's, uh, let's get through the next two because we are running a little bit uh, short on time today before our next interview. So let's move sure. through, let's, we have to go over, we have to share nine and 10 are so important. Can you, can you go through both of them? What are the ninth and 10th step that folks need sure. to do for private practice? 
Sure. So the ninth step is now that you've got all your paperwork and everything in place, you can start marketing uh, for your practice. And if you're in an area where you already know everyone or you have a couple clients who approached you about it, it won't be that hard. Um, you definitely want a website. You want a Facebook page. Even if you don't really post to it, that's just there for um, search engine optimization. People can find you. Um, you can talk to parents. If you have a kid, you can talk to their pediatrician and be like, hey, how do I get to referrals from you? Um, and then, you know, telling all the people that you know. And then uh, step 10, the last step is, um, you know, after you've done this for a little bit, you might want to um, incorporate um, so that things are, you know, a little more official. And after you get through your first tax season as a sole proprietor and you're like, ouch, maybe I should be an LLC, um, you can decide if you want to be an LLC or an S Corp, um, you know, even a partnership if you have that in your state, if you'd like to, you know, partner up with another SLP or an OT or someone. Um, so you want to make sure that you have those, um, business structures, an idea of what you'd like to be so that, uh, you can kind of move forward with your practice if you'd like to continue doing that. Mm -hmm. And Jill, before we say goodbye, what is your self-care challenge, a way that as SLPs and as busy SLPs, we can take better care of ourselves this week? So something that's worked really well for me as far as self-care is writing down what I need to do uh, rather than just kind of having an idea for the day and just attacking all the things at once. Um, and so list your top three things that you need to get done. I usually do it before I leave at night. Um, list top three things that need to get done. And then once you're done with that, kind of let yourself off the hook and say, you know, I've done these three things and, you know, that's it. I am now, I am okay with this, um, you know, if I don't get anything else done today. Yeah, it's keeping a focus and letting the rest go. I love doing that. Yeah. So there you have it. That's what we have for this episode of SLP Happy Hour. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion on how to get started seeing your own clients on the side. If you just go home with a big takeaway from this episode, remember two things that you can do right now to get started is to decide on a business name and get a tax ID number. Those are steps one and two. And then use this as an actionable plan to help you start that side hustle or private practice, uh, whatever it is that you are interested in. Want all 10 steps listed out so you don't have to re-listen in and take notes? Well, we've got you covered. We'll send them out to our email subscribers and you can sign up for that at slphappyhour.com. Also consider taking Jill's self-care challenge to write down just three things each day as your goal. And once you get those done, you are good to go. And Jill, if people who are listening are interested in private practice or learning more about you, where can they find you online? Um, they can find me on my website at privatepracticeslp.com or on social media at Jill Shook SLP. So that's Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. We hope you found this episode helpful, informative, and learned something along the way. By sharing our experiences with each other, we can all become stronger members of the SLP community and more forgiving of ourselves. If you learned something new from this episode, please share it with a friend. Make sure you are subscribed and please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Take a selfie of you listening to the podcast on social media and tag us. We love seeing those too. And if you only do one thing, review us in your podcast player. That makes a huge difference for us. 
You can find out more about us at our website, slphappyhour.com, or on social media as SLP Happy Hour. You can also learn more about Jill at privatepracticeslp.com, and we will include all of her links in our show notes. Remember, starting a private practice is no joke. So if you need step-by-step how-tos, Jill is your SLP to follow. We hope this episode was a little slice of an SLP happy hour for you. We enjoyed recording it. Until next time, this has been SLP Happy Hour.